We get into places that people don't want us to be. We do things that people don't want us to do. We're just pretty much out there to cause the most chaos as possible. Hi, I'm Captain Adam Morton with the Canadian Army Podcast. Canada is renowned for producing some of the best snipers in the world. Just read about it in the history books. From World War I to Afghanistan, we've been doing some pretty incredible stuff, including more recently, breaking multiple world records for longest shot. Here to tell us what it's all about is Sergeant Jeffrey Boutelier, who's a sniper instructor from the infantry school in Gagetown. Welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me. I guess let's get the common misconceptions out of the way. How is being a sniper different than, you know, what people are going to see in the movies or on TV? Everybody has that image in their mind of what that looks like. But, uh, you know, what's the real story? So everything you kind of see in the movies and on TV and stuff like that, you get to see the uh, the end result. So that roughly is about the 20% of uh, the whole package of actually getting to that point. So they don't get to see the actual planning, the training to get up to that point of actually pulling the trigger. Yeah. And I think it's a common misconception that uh, snipers are considered lone wolves when in reality they work as part of a debt or a detachment. Can you explain kind of what the individual members do in the debt? It's a four uh, personnel debt. Um, so you're going to have a uh, shooter. I think that's uh, pretty uh, pretty much speaks for itself. Yeah. Uh, the spotter is there to make corrections. So once that uh, round leaves the gun and it's traveling through the air, the spotter gets to see the actual projectile fly through the air and uh, can actually make a more precise correction. So instead of it taking four to five rounds, if you were just a, just a shooter on your own, you're looking at uh, one or two to actually hit the intended target if you have a spotter. While those two members are actually focused on actually doing the business, you have your security team, so now they don't have to focus on that. And then you have your deck commander who's running it. So once again, you're just taking away responsibilities from each one of the people that have to do their specific job. So you're going out as a debt. What kind of equipment are you carrying with you? Well, I'm actually going to talk about uh, all of our weapon systems that we uh, currently have that are specific to us. Uh, so the, uh, the C3 training weapon, uh, that's what we use on our uh, basic course. The C-14, that's like our mid-range uh, sniper weapon system. Uh, the C-15s, long range. And then we have our uh, new C-20 that just came out, which is our uh, automatic uh, gas-operated uh, weapon system. Besides the actual weapon systems, we are issued specialized kit to just kind of help us complete our job with a little bit more ease. So we have stuff like rucksacks with uh, gun sleeves so we can carry the actual gun with us, plate carriers, specialized tack vests for when we're laying in the prone, it makes us more comfortable. And it even goes down to as uh, far as uh, rain gear. So just specialized rain gear, and that's just to be more protected, last a little bit longer, so we're not uh, actually dealing with the elements. So you have all these different weapons. What do you consider when you're going out the door and you have all these different weapons packages? Uh, so different weapon packages uh, pretty much are uh, laid out for us. So when we're at, heading out the door, we look at the overall mission requirement and the overall intent that needs to be achieved, and then we select our weapon system based off of that. Why, why do we use snipers in deployment? What do snipers do? Ah, so snipers are a force multiplier. They're the most hated on the battlefield. One round can completely change the course of what was the intended overall mission. So, Why? Like, why do you say that? We get into places that people don't want us to be. We do things that people don't want us to do. We're just pretty much out there to be, I'm not, I don't want to say the, the badass of the battlefield, but we're pretty much out there to cause the most chaos as possible. And what does that look like in terms of, you know, how that affects the enemy? 
for example, in Afghanistan, I've been on the receiving end of sniper fire. Well, sniper fire, probably not, but been on the receiving end of fire where we've been pinned down for like an hour because one or two people were firing from a grape hut somewhere. And the entire company was basically temporarily, I would call it paralyzed, but we're moving, we're in action. So it kind of disrupts your ability to operate. So what can be some of the larger impacts on the battlefield? Well, actually, um, you used actually a really good example. So let's say your company now had to move forward and you had a time. You had to meet that uh, limit exploitation at a certain time. One sniper round completely crippled that company moving forward for one hour. And it only took one round. He doesn't have to fire multiple rounds after that. You just know that that fear that's instilled in you now to put your head up, to actually start moving forward, makes people second guess. It takes a lot longer for them to actually build that movement piece again, get the guys motivated to move. What are some of the challenges of actually implementing that kind of effect we see a lot of again i'm going to go back to the original movie question you know what i mean where you see like guys sneaking around the battlefield and you know they're up in the bell tower it all looks good on tv but like what are the challenges of that process or that part weather in my personal experience is the uh, the overall crippler you know if you're wet cold hungry for an extended period of time it makes that uh to achieve that overall mission intent uh, a lot harder. And uh, we're expected to do that for extended periods of time because it's not like we can travel with a company that provides a lot of security. We travel on a small debt, so we have to be quiet. We have to move slowly. Uh, we can't be seen. So every movement takes a little bit longer. And uh, so the overall weather plays the biggest effect for us. How do you prepare to face those challenges over a prolonged period of time? I'm just going to go back to personal experience from uh, times that we were doing training. You pretty much have to get close and you have to share some sleeping bags. And uh, <laughs> we refer to that as hot bagging. So the guy that kind of gets to go down, he heats up the, the sleeping bag for you. Your turn to come off that shift. You crawl right in and uh, that's just how we move forward. And that's just simply because uh, the amount of specialized kit that we have to carry with us. There's usually not a whole lot of room for uh, the creature comforts. What I mean by creature comforts is the extra puffies or the extra boots, extra socks. It's all about mission and completing that mission. So, One of my section commanders like forever ago once said that anybody can just go outside and be miserable for a couple of days and then that's just fine. But one of the hardest bits about being a soldier is being comfortable in difficult environments. And that's just like, you know, baseline infantry guys. So how do you guys take that to the next level? It's mental resilience. It's being so cold that one time that you can't move, can't feel your fingers. You get past it. You still achieve that goal. And then the next time you reach that overall coldness level, you're like, well, I've been here before. So there's a whole lot of comfort with kind of breaking through those mental barriers. And then the one thing that we do have that I personally really enjoy about snipers is uh, camaraderie between uh, our, our small teams. There's a whole lot of reflection off each other. We trust each other. And when you're seeing a really close friend of yours going through the same thing as you, you just kind of laugh it off and kind of carry on. You know, a friend of mine once called that type two fun. Type one fun is where, you know, you're partying with your friends or at an event or something. Type two fun is the kind of thing that you look back on a year later and it's like, oh my God, I can't believe we just sat in that OP for two days straight, freezing and hating our lives. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't see in any type of military operation is kind of the battle procedure aspect, which is, you know, everything leading up to going out and doing the thing. 
So how does that figure into how you approach the execution of your tasks? A big thing for us, um, part of that 80% is observing. And you may not always take that shot. You may not always get to see that 20% where you actually get to pull the trigger. You might actually go and just still observe, collect that intel, uh, interpret it, and pass it up higher. Yes, I understand drones are a big thing in the last few years, but at the, but at the end of the day, you have an actual person on the ground, a human, interpreting what he's uh, observing and passing it up through to give a better idea of exactly what is happening on the ground. Yeah, humans are better. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> I know. I'm with you. So talk to us a little bit about uh, camouflage techniques and, you know, the stealth approach to, you know, engaging a target. Nailed it. <laughs> uh, so for us, it all starts from that 80% we talked about earlier. So our mission planning on, on actually how to conduct our mission. So from the time that we get, hey, this is where you're going and what you're doing, we start looking at the ground. You know, where can we go where less likely people are going to be? You know, it makes it a little bit easier for us to move a little bit faster. And then we start looking at open fields. You know, do we have to cross an open field? Is it would it? You know, it allows the same thing just to kind of stay concealed from what's above us or you know, less likely to bump into people. Um, when it actually comes to equipment, we refer to it as a ghillie suit. So that's what you would see in the, the 20% movies where, you know, got the big ghillie suit looks like the mammoth kind of thing. <laughs> we do have ghillie yeah. suits, but uh, we like to use natural vegetation. So as we're slowly moving through the battlefield, we'll obviously always be updating what we're in to help us stay concealed within the actual natural environment around us. We're talking about stealth and all of this, but... If you're seeing major events like GA, G20, Remembrance Day, you have snipers up on buildings and urban environments. What's the difference between the kind of army sneaking around piece and having snipers up on buildings that everybody can see at special events? Whenever um, you'd see snipers on buildings or visible and not hidden, to me that it would be a deterrent. It's a, uh, a show of force. It's supposed to prevent people from actually doing something wrong. When it's actually field craft and we're hidden, we're kind of sneaking in, we're there not to be seen and we're there to conduct a mission, like take a shot and then leave without being actually observed. You know, I think in the military, we use the term best moments in a weirder way than some other people. But like, tell me about some of those moments you just talked to me about where you're out there, you're freezing or you're having a hard time and your buddies are keeping you there through that experience. The CISC, it's the Canadian International Sniper Concentration. I got to compete as a, a team, so I actually had to go out and apply some of my skills against other nations. And then I actually got to go and uh, be the coach two years later. So now I've went one step up higher. Um, I got to actually coach the guys, do their um, pre-training, and then actually bring them to the event. So uh, that was two major ones that I could see as like a, like a competition or a concentration that I've done. But some of the overseas deployment kind of stuff that's... Uh, um, kind of bring like a major highlight to my career was uh, Norway. I got to go to Norway and that was the one time that I actually left Canada to go and do like a, a concentration with a bunch of other nations, but not in our back door. Um, but we actually got to go somewhere else to apply it. So just different challenges, you know, to uh, overcome. Yeah. So what does the international sniper concentration look like? Like what does that event entail? Pretty much... We're bringing in people from all over the world uh, with the same passion and desire to be better. We come, yes, we do compete, but uh, the actual overall intent is to share past experiences so we can all grow 
and be better and just kind of keep moving that bar a little bit higher each time. But also networking. So that's how stuff like Norway happens. People come down, get the talk, make those connections. Next, you know, we can actually say, hey, well, we have a competition. Would you like to come? So um, it's just opening up more opportunities for our community. When is uh, the Canadian International Sniper Concentration? When's that happening? So the uh, the CISC is usually ran every uh, one to two years. COVID obviously uh, has been a big part of uh, our lives for the last little portion here, which has actually put it on the pause for uh, a short period of time. But uh, we're always revisiting every year. We're always going to see if we can push it to the next year to obviously keep that uh, tradition and that competition going. Can you tell me a little bit about your career path? Like, how did you get started in the infantry? How did you wind up in the sniper cell? Started out like anybody else, just kind of wanted to make some money and join the army. Um, you know, Afghanistan was a big push at that time. So signed up and went for her. So I uh, went overseas, came back and uh, realized that uh, I actually enjoyed the job. I enjoyed being in the infantry. But uh, at that point there, it was, what does my career path entail? And uh, uh, when anybody thinks about infantry, we think about what the most thought after place you can be in the infantry, and that's being qualified as snipers. So I just lined up my sights on that and did all the appropriate courses to make sure I got to slide into that position and get those opportunities. And uh, I've never looked back and uh, I honestly don't see myself doing anything else. Quite frankly, if I never made it into snipers, I probably still wouldn't be in the army because I enjoy it that much. So what's what's the path to becoming a sniper? What does that look like? You got to finish your um, your DP1, which is your uh, basic uh, infantry training. After that, you usually do about one or two years go through a selection process, complete your recce course. Things that you have to do after that is um, be mentally, physically fit. You got to be a volunteer, can't be colorblind, and uh, be coachable is the, the main one overall. Why is colorblindness a factor? Colorblindness is because uh, when you're looking through optics and you have to make a call on if you're actually going to conduct uh, that final shot that we were talking about earlier, there can't be any questions. You know, you talked about uh, the recce course and some of the training. What are some of the skill sets that lie within the realm of snipers? Uh, the skill sets, like we were talking about earlier, you want to be able to just kind of pick apart certain things, notice things that other people don't notice. Good memory. Um, we actually do that with uh, Kim's games on the course. Uh, we test your overall ability to see stuff under stress for a short period of time and actually recall them later on. Explain what a Kim's game is for the people that might not know what that is. The basic way to kind of explain it would be the most average generic kind of Kim's games you can see would be a series of items on a table. You get the uh, candidates slash students on the course to walk around the table in whatever which direction you want for a period of time. You can induce stress to kind of bring those levels up a little bit higher. And then what you do is you take away the items and then you ask them what the items were. That could be immediately after cover the items or it could be later on that day. So when you're doing it, like at the end also, what are you looking for in the answers there? Because it's not just like, oh yeah, it was a truck or something like that. You're looking for a certain level of detail usually. Big thing we like to do is uh, appears to be just because uh, if you can't actually remember exactly what that item was. So for an example, let's say we put uh, a dinky car on the table, right? Um, and it's it's red, has wheels, and there's a lot of descriptive words you can use towards it. What you're doing is you're trying to give as much information about that object. So even if you can't say, yes, that was a dinky car, once that information gets passed up to hire, someone above us might be able to say, you know what, that sounds like a dinky car. Right. 
And so that would naturally translate in like a combat environment to describing, let's say, armored fighting vehicles or people that are moving around and feeding that information back to higher headquarters. 100%. Yes, that's correct. If people want to be snipers, what's the recruiting process? What does that look like? Let's just kind of paint a picture here. You just finished your uh, infantry qualification. You stepped uh, stepped your boots inside, let's say for an example, 3RCR or the regiment that you've been uh, posted to. And you're like, I want to be a sniper today. Okay. I would give it a year or two. Okay. I would take a year or two to actually learn the basic fundamentals of what a platoon context does, what a company does, and what a section does. That's just going to make you better overall. Once you've kind of done a year or two, start pushing out uh, to your uh, your warrant and uh, start showing interest, being like, I would like to go on this recce path. And that's the first initial course you have to go on. That course there is the gateway to pretty much any specialized uh, courses that the infantry provides and start pushing towards it. During your recce course, there is snipers that are actually teaching on those courses and they're going to start looking for people that are showing interest that want to be snipers to move to that next level. That's when the real critical point is kind of met. Uh, once you pass that recce course, those snipers that are teaching on the course or being around each other or being around that course, they're looking for attributes. They're looking for qualities. Okay. If I had to give any advice for those people that are trying to jump into that sniper realm, coachable, 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 coachable. And the reason I say that is you may show up and you may know how to shoot a gun real well. You may be above certain people, but guess what? That's as good as you're going to get if you're not coachable. I'd much rather take a guy that doesn't uh, have those same skill sets at that time and build on them. So biggest recommendation, coachable, and uh, yeah, just try your best, get to that point, and then uh, yeah, we'll scoop you up and bring you in. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the coachable aspect because like I look back at a lot of people that I know that are calf sack top shooters. One of the biggest things that they use to get better is that attitude. Is It's not just natural talent. You have to be able to go out there and learn from other people and incorporate that stuff to make yourself better. Yes, 100%. Still to this day, 15 years in the army now, still counting, and I'm still learning stuff every day. It's hard to do. It's hard to kind of go, oh, I've done this a hundred times. I've done this a thousand times. But at the end of the day, someone might just look at it differently, might present it a different way where you're just like, aha, okay, that makes it a little bit easier. I'm just going to scoop up that little piece and it makes you better. And then you get to just pass it on later on in your career. So always remain coachable. Well, that's pretty good life advice right there. Like, I think if there's anything you can take away, whether you're military or not, is remain coachable. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for uh, going through all that and covering it all for us. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Sergeant Jeffrey Bootlier from the Infantry School telling us to stay coachable. For more on the basics of shooting, check out one of my personal favorites, the Marksmanship Podcast. That's season one, episode nine. I'm Captain Adam Morton for the Canadian Army Podcast. Morton out. <laughs>